Well, take your Bibles this morning and we start a brand new series that'll take us up through the end of the year called Perspective, looking at the book of Philippians. And uh, Pastor John and myself are going to be taking you right through this book section by section uh, in these next 13 weeks together as we do a study. So I would encourage you to spend some time just reading through Philippians over and over. And uh, maybe by the end of this, you'll really know this book and understand this book. It is a great book uh, for us to spend some time in uh, over these next 13 weeks. And today we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. We've entitled this Memories this morning. And I think as we get into the text today, you'll see why we gave it that title. So we'll read the first um, 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is Paul's opening. I want to ask you a couple questions this morning before we actually get into the text, and we're going to be spending some time talking about Paul this morning. But if I was to ask you, or if somebody else was to ask you, what drives you? What do you get up in the morning for? What what do you really get up for every day? What drives you? What makes you get up and go? What really excites you? What turns you on? The Apostle Paul, I really believe, as I've been reading this week about his life, and again, studying him and thinking through his life, I believe there were two things that drove the Apostle Paul. I think there were two things that he got up for every morning. Those two things, one is simply the gospel of Christ. Paul lived to give the gospel of Christ. God had called him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he woke up every morning, I think, thinking how he could do that. The second thing I believe that drove him was glory of God. So it was the gospel and the glory of God was what drove the Apostle Paul every day. Now he is human just like you and I are. He had good days. He had bad days. He had days, I'm sure, when he wondered, why am I even doing this? And he spent a lot of time in prison. But you know what? I think even in those prison times, and we'll see that today, 
The gospel and the glory of God drove him. And if there were ever two things that ought to drive every Christian, that ought to excite us, that ought to make us want to get up, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's the glory of God. And after all, that's what we exist for. We exist to bring glory to God and we exist when the gospel is lived out in our life on a daily basis. These two things were the driving force in the life of the Apostle Paul, and they ought to be the driving force in our life today. Paul was a missionary church planter. If Paul would be alive today, Paul would be planting churches in major cities, just like he did back then. He would be planting churches in New York and Los Angeles and, you know, those big cities, Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore. He was a church planter who seemed to focus on those big cities. And he would go into a city. He would find a group of people. He would share the gospel of Christ. And he would develop a community of believers. After he had developed that community of believers, he would establish leadership in the church. After he established leadership, he would ground them in the gospel. And once he had done those three things and gave them a foundation, he would move on to another major city and begin to do the same thing again. When we get here to the book of Philippians, he had done that at Philippi. He had come to Philippi, and we'll see that in just a few moments, and we'll see how God used him in a great way in the foundation with the gospel there. But he, he came, and so Philippi uh, had a special place in his heart, and the Philippian people seemed to have a special place. He had a pastor's heart. Even though he was a church planter and would move on, he still loved those churches and loved those people so much that he spent time with when he was there planting the church. It's interesting that Philippians is one of the only letters that Paul writes that he seems not being focused on correcting or bad teaching that's going on in the church or rebuking bad behavior. It's more of a positive. Philippians highlights Paul's personal affection for the Philippian Philippian people. If you read any of Paul's other letters, you'll always find him saying, do this, don't do this. Stop this. Start doing this. Quit going here. Now act like this. Get right. Act right. Be right. He grounds those commandments in the finished work of Christ. But we don't find that type of writing here to the Philippians. I'm not saying the Philippian church had it all together. Uh, we're we're going to see there was a little confrontation a little bit later between two women in the church as we get later. But as a whole, it seemed like the church of Philippi had things together. Even they financially would sacrifice to meet the needs of other churches. And Paul talks about that in his other writings. And they've even taken a sacrificial offering and sent it to Paul. And we'll see that as we get in. So as we open this letter... Today, and we look at these first 11 verses, these are sort of Paul sitting in prison. That's where he is when he's writing this letter to the people of Philippi. He's thinking back. He's reflecting back on some really good memories that he has there. 
So that's what we want to look at this morning as we go in. And so in the first two verses, we simply have Paul's greeting. And let me tell you that the greeting to the church of Philippi is different. If you want to go through and you want to read some of the other greetings, you can do that in, the, in his other writings, like to the church at Ephesus, um, to the church at Galatia. You will see that his opening remarks are much different than these remarks here. These are a little bit what we might say are more informal to Paul. These are just much more informal. You'll see that he says, Paul and Timothy, servants. The other writings, he usually says, Paul, an apostle of Christ. Right away, he wants to establish his authority because he's dealing with things. Here, it's almost like there's a different relationship here with the church at Philippi. So he simply says, Paul and Timothy, your servants. We are there to serve you. That servant is an interesting word when you go back and you study it through. What he's saying here is, listen... We are servants. It's the word doulos. It's subjects without bondage. When we think of a servant, we think of somebody who's in bondage. But he says we're subjects without bondage. We have chosen to put ourselves, we have chosen to make ourselves your servants. So that's what he's telling the church here. We're here to serve you. And you know, really church, Pastor John and and our staff, we're here to serve you, but you ought to be here to serve each other. That's really what it's about. It's about serving one another. And so Paul starts that. He says, I am a servant by choice out of privilege. Paul looked at being a servant as a privilege. It's a privilege to serve God and to serve you at the same time. Paul is saying in this opening greeting to the church at Philippi. And then you'll notice the next thing. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the what? Well, that was weak. To all the... Saints, say it again, to all the saints, that's right. How many of you are a saint today? Raise your hand. You know, all those who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are saints. We've bought into a wrong philosophy of what a saint is. You're a saint. That's what the Bible says. You Look at Paul's writings. Often he refers to Christians as what? Saints. We are saints. Listen, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are declared righteous. You are justified, not because of anything you've done, but because of Christ. And so because of that, in your standing with Jesus Christ, he says you are a saint. Takes a whole different meaning, doesn't it? See, if I, if I just say I'm only a sinner, that's true. I'm a sinner who's saved by grace, but Christ looks you, at you as a saint. And sometimes, you know, I like to get this across to Christians. If I see myself as a saint, it calls me to a higher standard of living. If I say, oh, well, I'm just a sinner, so what if I sin? You know, see the difference there? It's like, you know, if I have a nice suit on and I'm taking a walk and there's a mud puddle, I'm probably going to go around it. But if I got my own old clothes on and my old shoes, what am I going to do? Ah, it's mud, so what? It's water, I'll jump in it. There's a difference, isn't there? We're saints who sin occasionally. If I just say I'm a sinner, that means I can sin all the time. But if I'm a saint who sins occasionally, because sin shouldn't be a pattern of the Christian life. And so immediately he established this. We're servants who are serving one another. We are saints because of what Christ done. It starts with salvation, continues in sanctification, and ends in our glorification, Paul's saying here. 
So he's saying, yes, and you are a saint. And then he directs this book, not only to the people of Philippi, but also recognizing the overseers and the deacons, the elders and the deacons. Again, a plurality of leadership, plurality of eldership here, I believe, just like the direction we're moving as a ministry here as we're working on our constitution to have elders and deacons. There's a plurality. So he mentions to the elders and deacons who are serving here at the church of Philippi. And then he gives you the purpose In a sense, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His purpose of this salutation is one of encouragement. I want to encourage you in the grace of God and in the peace of Jesus Christ. So he says, here's the purpose for my salutation. Here's the purpose for my welcome to you. I just want to say, listen, I want to encourage you in how God has worked in your life in grace. And then I want to encourage you in the peace of God. Because grace has worked in your life, you now have peace with God, which ought to cause you to have peace with one another. And so this is his opening salutation. This is his opening greeting. Like if we were to say, we were to write a letter and we would say, Hi, how are you doing? What's going on? Well, that's sort of his opening remarks in this letter to the church at Philippi. And then he's going to get in to the letter, and we're going to call this Paul's Thanksgiving and Joy, verses 3 through 6. Let me read them again. He says, I thank my God in all remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first um, day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is sitting in a prison reflecting back on past experiences there in Philippi as he writes this letter. And uh, he's going to send this letter back with Epaphras. Epaphras had brought the offering to him in prison, so he's going to send him back with this letter that he's writing. But he starts off with just sort of remembering. And it's a thankful remembrance. And let me tell you why it's a thankful remembrance. Because I think he's thinking back to the conception of the church at Philippi. He was on a missionary journey, and God stopped that journey and called him. We call it the Macedonian call, and he called him. And Paul listened to that call, and he ends up in Philippi. You study the Apostle Paul. Whenever he went to a new city, the first place that Paul went was he went to the synagogue. When he arrived in Philippi, he looked for a synagogue, and there was no synagogue there. So where is he going to go? He's got to find somebody of like mind. So he hears about a lady's Bible study that's going on in the city. Down by the river, this Bible study is taking place. And there's a group of ladies who have gathered and and studying, in a sense, the teachings of God, studying what they had. And they were praying together. And it was there that he found a woman named Lydia, a woman who was well-to-do, a woman who had a business that she ran. But she would take time from this business to go and to be under this teaching and to this prayer time, and uh, the Bible says that she was a seller of clothes. She had a, a, a purple clothes, of purple goods. So she had a clothing business. 
Um, And it was there that she came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior, and the Bible says, in her household. So here's Paul's first convert. Now, we don't have time to go there this morning, but if you want to this week, go back to Acts chapter 16, and you'll hear, or you'll be able to read what I'm telling you this morning from Acts chapter 16. It lays that conversion out of Lydia. So that's his first conversion, and he's excited about that. But then it's not too long after that, really right on the, 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 the tale of her coming to know Christ as her Savior, they're preaching, and they come across a demonic girl. Now, the reality is they didn't come across her. This demonic girl heard that Paul was preaching in Philippi, and so she began to follow him around. It's interesting when you, you read it, she heckled him, and uh, as, as, as they, he preached, she would come each day and heckle him. And uh, every day she would be there screaming things and yelling things, demon-possessed while he was preaching. And so finally, the Bible says that Paul exercised the demon. He cast the demon out, and she came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior. Now, she had some men who owned her. And those men used her for the purpose of gain. They used her for the purpose of foretelling, of telling people's future. And so what happened is when that woman came to Jesus Christ, this demonic girl came to Christ, their business dropped off dramatically. They really got ticked off. And so they went to the local magistrate and said, Hey, listen, there's this guy in town. He's really causing problems for the businesses of town. We need to lock him up. And so as you read in Acts chapter 16, sure enough, they lock him up. They put him in prison. So convert number one is Lydia. Convert number two is a demonic controlled girl whose owners get upset, really ticked off, and uh, have Paul cast in prison. There he is in prison, bruised and bleeding, complaining to God about how wrong God was for this. Is that right? No, what was he doing? He was singing. They were having an old-fashioned hymn sing. They were singing praises to God and worshiping God. And it must have been an unbelievable service. There they are, bruised and beaten, and and yet they're singing. And all of a sudden, this earthquake, God sends an earthquake, and it sets them free. Their chains are gone. The doors are open. And the the prisoner or the, the prison guard, if you were a prison guard and your prisoners got away, you might as well just kill yourself. And that's what he's about to do. And they say, oh, don't harm yourself. And it was there that the Philippian jailer came to know Jesus Christ as a Savior. And the Bible says his house also. That night they were baptized and they came to know Christ as their Savior. And so here we are. In just a short amount of time, Paul comes to Philippi. Remember, he's he's sitting in prison and he's thinking back. He's thinking back to these great memories. He's thinking back to Lydia getting saved. And he's thinking back to the demonic girl getting saved. And he's thinking back to the Philippian jailer. And he's thinking back, wow, there's our what? There's our start to the church at Philippi. And so he is just thanking God. It's just memories that are flooding his soul. And you know, I'm sure there were many, many, many more who came to know Christ and who Paul saw grow. 
And so he's just thinking back, excited at the start of the church at Philippi and how God had worked. You'll hear me say this often, and it's sort of not an affront to anybody that's here. I always glad when we get new members. I'm always excited about it. We just started a new members class today. It was exciting to sit there with those eight people and to hear their testimonies of Christ. And some are coming from other churches, you know. And then we have a few who were there today who just came to know Jesus. Now, don't, again, don't take me wrong. I'm excited, no matter where you come from, to join our church. But I got to tell you this. When I got somebody who gets saved and baptized and joined the church right, right now, woo! I really get excited. I do get excited. That's exciting when somebody says, yeah, just this year or two years ago, I came to know Jesus as my Savior, and I got baptized, and we heard their testimonies, and I'm here to present myself for membership. I do. That's when I become Pentecostal. Because I get excited. I want to praise God. Because what does that say? God's working right now. I'm excited. A couple who was there today, he, he, he was 80. Bob, raise your hand. He, 80 years old. A long time ago, as a 25-year-old man, he came to know Christ. And I, whoa, I am excited about that. I am excited. But I'm really excited, too, when I know people are still getting saved today. And they're coming members of Mount Calvary. And I think Paul, thinking back on those new converts, he was just praising God from prison. Just praising God for what he had done. And then I want you to know also, he was thankful for their partnership. Look at that next verse where he talks about their partnership. Where he says in verse 5, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, the whole foundation of the church at Philippi had been the gospel, and it continued to be the gospel. I'll say it till I die. Church, church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we lose that, then we've lost it. When we forget about the gospel, we've lost it. And so he says, listen, I am so thankful from the first day when we started this church, from the first day of Lydia, when Lydia came to know Jesus Christ, it was about the gospel. This partnership that we have together, it's about reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. They'll see some Jews get saved too. And, uh, but the real thing, Paul said, listen, we're over here where all the Gentiles are living. There wasn't even a Jewish synagogue there at Philippi. So it's a place of Gentiles. And so he said, listen, our partnership, we have come together for the gospel. Hey, you know, I, I, I love small groups, and I, I, we have a great small group, and I know many of you do, and I get excited when we get together with our small groups. And there's such a partnership and a fellowship there, but you know, do you know who, when I really feel partnership with people, is on a missions trip. Put me, when I was in India, I, I, two men from my church and a bunch of people from Virginia, from a Southern Baptist church in Virginia, we went together to India. And in those two weeks, we became like one. Because what were we there for? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I'll never forget when we went to South America and we took a group down there and we worked in a camp down in South America with ABWE. And we had the privilege in those two weeks, we went out in the streets and gave the gospel of Christ there in Bogota and then it worked in the camp. And man, when we left those two weeks, every night we would get together. My dad was on that trip and my father-in-law was on that trip and, and a bunch of guys and, fam- and women and kids from our church. I'll never forget that trip. Because we were there for the purpose of the gospel. You know, one of the most exciting things to me every year when we go down to Angola for the last two years, you can ask Connie about this. After the day is over, we get on the bus heading back, and everybody just starts sharing what Jesus has done that day. And there is such a partnership on that bus, and you just sense the oneness because we're there for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what? Paul saying, listen, woo, this is about the gospel, and it is so great to work with you. And if there's a reason for us to get excited about Awana and Upward and everything we do here, it's because we're partnering together to reach people with the gospel of Christ. And that's what he's excited about as he remembers back. This is what it's about. And so he has this partnership, this fellowship around the gospel of Christ. But not only is that, he's thankful for the confidence in verse 6. Thankful for the confidence. I see God working in you. He says, and I am sure of this. I'm sure, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He said, listen, I was there. I saw God bring you to himself. I've seen God working in your sanctification, and I'm looking forward to that day of your glorification. I can tell you the same God who saved you is the same God who's going to give you total glorification someday. And he said, I am excited. I have confidence that the work he started in you, he's going to finish. And what Paul's saying, I am looking at your life. I'm looking at your church. I'm looking at you, and I see growth. Can people see growth in you? Can people see growth in you? Does your family see you growing in your relationship with Christ? Do people around you see you growing in your relationship with Christ? One of the most exciting things to me as a pastor is when I see our people growing. And, I, and I've seen that recently. I've seen some people reaching out to other people. and just I've seen people growing unbelievable in their Christian walk. And that's what Paul says. Listen, I am thankful. I am thankful for you. So Paul, thanksgiving and joy. And then Paul's joyful affection. Paul's joyful affection in verse 7. It is right, it's okay, he says, for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with my, me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with affection of Christ Jesus. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. He, he was telling these people of Philippi, you have a special place. And I don't think it was just because of the offering he had just got from him either. I think it was because when he thought back and thought about their salvation and he thought about God's working in their life, it just brought him to a spirit of thanksgiving and joy. He loved them. 
He says, the affection from fellowship. You'll notice there, the affection is from fellowship. This affection came because we've spent time together. We've spent time helping with each other. And And again, he reiterates this. It was around the gospel. It was around the gospel. We had this fellowship, he says, it was around the gospel. And then he says, it was also Christ affection. I'm calling on God to say, you be my witness, God, how much I love these people because of what Christ has done in me and what he's done in them. And again, it's interesting that Paul's whole focus there, if you really study that through in that portion, he talks about he has these deep feelings for them. He's thanking them for the fellowship that they've had together. And I think, again, that fellowship was around the gospel of Jesus Christ as they worked to reach the town of Philippi for the gospel of Christ. And then Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. Paul then breaks out in prayer. And I really think as he's thinking back and remembering this joy, this thankfulness, he just breaks out then in prayer for the church. And look, look what he prays for them for. Look, starting in verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't say, And it's my prayer that your love for your wife abounds more and more, or your prayer for each other abounds more and more, or your, prayer, or your love for God abounds more and more. He doesn't really give us an object of that. He said, I just want your life to overflow with love more and more. And I think what he's saying is, listen, I want that love for me, that vertical love to grow more and more, and that, ver- and that horizontal love for each other. I just want there to be such a love that it just overflows. And that's what we as Christians, we ought to be abounding in love. We ought to be overflowing in love. It says, you will know them by their what? Love. Christians ought to be known by their love and their care for each other and the way we treat each other and tenderness, the way we talk to each other and respect and in honor and loving each other. Those things ought to be known. Those things ought to be natural. Why? Because we're saints. We're saints. He said, I want you to abound in love. But he doesn't stop there. I want you to abound in love more and more with, and then he gives a couple things, with knowledge and all discernment. So in this prayer, he's saying, listen, I want you to have knowledge, and I really believe when we look at this word knowledge, he's talking about the knowledge of Christ. As I want you to have knowledge of Christ, and the more knowledge, the more you know Christ, the more your love is going to abound. The stronger your relationship with Christ, just the more natural you're going to love him, the more natural you're going to love other people. See, when you don't love other people, the problem isn't the other people. The problem is your relationship here with God. Did you catch that? When you don't love people the way you should, people aren't the problem. It usually comes back to your relationship with God. The more you know God and the more intimately you have a relationship with Him, that is going to overflow out of your life into love to your family, to your wife, to your church. To others around you. Show me somebody with a bad attitude. I'll show you somebody that has a problem with their relationship with Christ. 
We can, we can say, oh, well, it's this person or that person or the way they treat me or this or that. But you've got a bad attitude that comes back to your relationship with God often. And so he says, knowledge. He says, I want you to grow. I mean, through this love, it's going to grow through knowledge, the knowledge of Christ and in all discernment. In all discernment or insight is another way. The more we know Christ, the more we'll love him and our love will overflow. And that will lead to insight. This is an interesting word. This is the only place in the New Testament we find this word used in this way. No other place. And so this word here actually means this. It means insights for practical living. That's what it really means. Paul says, listen, I want you to be falling in love with Jesus so much and learning about him so much that you have this natural love that just flows out of you and out of that, you have insights for living. In other words, you're going to know how to, how to live in your marriage. You're going to know how to, to work with your kids. You're going to know these things. He said, I want those practical insights to come. And so that's what he's praying for the church at Philippi, that they'll have this love that overflows, that they'll have the insights to be able to live out the practical Christian life every day. That's what he's praying for them. And then his prayer is for assessing what is best he says so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless and so the next thing he prays so you may approve he say not only distinguish right from wrong but you'll know what is good and best and you know that a lot of times in our life that's something that we have to know you know is this what's best for me i mean this is okay but what should i do should i do what is good or should i do what is best and paul knew that the just like you and I have to make those hard decisions in our life sometimes. You know, we have things that aren't bad, but is it good or is it best? And Paul's praying that this church would actually have the knowledge and the wisdom to make decisions, practical decisions in their Christian life, what is good and what is best. That's what he's saying here. I like the way MacArthur said it here. He said, if God's children overflow with love to God and others, along with growing personal knowledge of God and Christ and practical insights, they'll be able to discern and choose what is superlative. The best over the second best, the best over the good, the best in knowledge of God, the best in priorities, the best in habits, the best in pleasures, the best in pursuits, and the best course of action for themselves and for their families. That's what he prays for them, that they'll know what is best. And then the last thing he says, he prays for the day of Christ in verse 10. So your life can be pure and blameless. And he said, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Filled with the fruit. Pray. He's going to pray for the return of Christ. He said, remember, Christ is coming back. And because Christ is coming back, it ought to cause you to want to have a life that's pure, to want to live a life that's blameless, to be a a life that's filled with the fruits of righteousness. And that's what his prayer is for these people at Philippi. He says, you know, Christ is coming back pretty soon. How much closer it must be we're 2,000 years down the road, Jesus is going to return. And so he says, listen, because of Christ's return, I want you to live a pure life, a blameless life, and a life filled with righteousness. And then he ends the greeting of his letter. He ends the opening of his letter 
with this. To the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of the doxology. He said, it's all about God. It's all about Christ. It's all about living to bring glory to him. As we walk through the book of Philippians together, I think we're going to get a perspective of life and how we should live it. We're going to get a perspective that life is to be lived for the glory of God. That's the perspective that we're going to, one of the perspectives that we're going to see, that life is about the gospel and the glory of God. What's it about for you? I hope it will be about that. I can remember one day winning a wrestling match. I never could pin the guy. I won 12 to 3. It was the first high school win I had ever had. And I've told you about my dad before. He was a business manager of a local school district. He, he lived like this. He never really got excited until his son got on the wrestling mat. And then he screamed. He screamed. I can still remember laying on my back one day and him screaming, Get off your back! You're lazy! And I couldn't, remember, I couldn't believe my dad was calling me lazy. But I'll never forget, we were, we were walking from the high school out across the parking lot, and he said, I'm really proud of you, son. He said, but who did you wrestle for today? And I thought about it for a minute, and he said, again, who did you wrestle for today? And what he was pointing out to me that day was I had wrestled for myself. And he said, so how are you going to turn this into the glory of God? That week, I went to my wrestling coach and I said, Coach, <clears throat> I really believe that we should open up our matches with prayer. Hey, never thought of that, but if it's going to make us win, we'll win. We'll do that. So every day before we came out on the mats, he said, the preacher will pray. And I prayed. And then we would go out. We won the next three meets. He came to me and says, listen, I think we should pray out for everybody, not just back here. For the rest of the year, we prayed at the microphone with everybody listening. That year, we went on to be the state champions. My coach never came to know Christ, but if you talk to him today, he'll tell you it's because we prayed. And who got the glory? God got the glory. That's what life is about. Parents, if you've got your kids in sports, remember, it's about the glory of God. It really is. Nothing else is going to matter this side of eternity. My dad taught me that perspective of life.